Our New Testament readings this morning are taken from 1 Corinthians and the Gospel of John. Hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will, also give you he will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And John chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you just heard my phone go off with a little beep, that was Lori Nelson saying, Oh my gosh, I completely forgot. So <laughs> she apologizes for not being here for this morning's reading. She must be watching on YouTube. <laughs> All right. Good morning, church family. Happy Sunday. If, uh, if you were here with us last week, you know that it was a great day of worship together, and CJ gave us a, a deeper look behind the curtain of his Scrooge-slash-Grinch-like disappointment with the Christmas season, lamenting the great gulf that exists between the historic Orthodox observation of Advent and Christmas and the enormous letdown of our cultural celebration of Christmas as this end-all, be-all, hap-hap-happiest day of the year. 
And if you weren't here last Sunday, let me strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast or watch the YouTube recording. I found it to be a very grounding and important word to hear as one year closes out and another year begins. We Mulders had a very busy Christmas season with a trip down to Atlanta to spend time with Kim's family, followed immediately by a trip up to Canada to spend time with my family. And if we are connected on social media, uh, you may have seen a few photos that we posted while up in Canada. One of my favorites being this photo of George looking up at his grandpa the morning after we arrived. Another favorite photo that you wouldn't have seen from our uh, vacation was our family sledding outing, which was absolutely fantastic. My sister Cheryl found this like antique sled that was just made for this moment. The first two evenings while in Canada, there were dense fog warnings being issued on the news. And for the drier climate of the prairies in Alberta, this is a relatively uncommon occurrence. But one of the stunning effects of evening fog is what happens the following morning. It's called hoarfrost, H-O-A-R, frost. I had to clarify that because that's a weird one. (laughs) But the name comes from an old English word for the old age appearance of white hair or a white beard. And as the temperature drops overnight, the water vapor in the fog freezes onto anything it touches, blades of grass or leaves or tree branches, forming this thick feather-like frost everywhere. And so stepping outside on our first two mornings in Stony Plain was literally like stepping into a winter wonderland. It was glorious. The last time I was up in Canada was to officiate the wedding of my niece Libby to her fiance, now husband, Nick. And they had a coffee table book made of their wedding photos that I got to see for the first time, and it was absolutely stunning. And looking at some of the photos, you would wonder if the wedding took place in the 1950s or if the wedding took place yesterday. Either could be true. Um, Fun fact, uh, the church that they are standing in front of in this next photo was the church where my parents were married on September 30th, 1967 which is also the church building of my childhood before the new building was built in the early 1980s, just 300 yards to the west, which is where Nick and Libby's wedding took place. The next time that I'll be up in Canada will be to officiate the wedding of another of my nieces, Sarah and her fiance, Daniel, I don't normally get nervous officiating weddings. I've done enough of them over the years now that I find them to just be absolutely delightful. But here's the thing. I have like three and a half wedding homilies that I pretty much just rotate through with only minor adjustments. But when officiating Libby and Nick's wedding last summer before a room filled with my family and old friends, Out of ego and pride, I pulled out all the stops, and I pillaged the best pieces of all of my wedding homilies, which means that either, one, poor Sarah and Daniel are going to get the wedding homily dregs for their wedding, or two, I'm going to have to come up with something new. But this week, as part of my regular exercise of reading and study and sermon preparation, while looking for inspiration for how to approach and speak on Isaiah's powerful words that Sarah read for us earlier, um, I think I may have accidentally found both 
inspiration for today, but also inspiration for my uh, niece Sarah and her fiance Daniel's wedding. But first, let's reread the prophet Isaiah's words. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is a big moment in Isaiah's and Israel's understanding of who God is. Up to this point in the Old Testament story, Israel's understanding of the scope of God's plan was somewhat limited. God's salvation was for them. It was not too light a thing to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. That was the thing. And the language in much of the Old Testament reflects this. But something seems to have broken open for Isaiah and changed things, which of course is how it works for all of us. Something breaks open and our understanding expands. It grows, gets a little bigger. At the end of John Pavlovitz's book, A Bigger Table, he talks about moments as an author and speaker when he finds himself arguing with his former self disagreeing with the things that he wrote or spoke as a younger man. But he welcomes these moments as evidences of growth. And he writes this, I warmly welcome the opportunity to confront the human being I used to be. In fact, I'm fairly certain and actually quite hopeful that a future iteration of me will take issue with something I'm writing right now. Because if not, it means I'll have stopped learning and listening and being stretched into deeper maturity. On that note, I am ridiculously grateful that podcasting was not a thing when I started preaching in 1994. When I preached my first sermons at Gateway Alliance Church in North Edmonton, all of my current sermons confront the human being that I used to be. And it seems that something similar is happening in our text, is happening with Isaiah. This passage seems to be arguing with his former self. Listen to a couple of the passages from the earlier writings in Isaiah. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Isaiah 8, 9, and 10. And then Isaiah 10, 13 and 14. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. And now Isaiah hears God say to him, 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. As we've talked about in past sermons, when we see shifts like this in Scripture, it isn't God changing. It isn't the divine who undergoes a transformation from the beginning of the book of Isaiah to the end of the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah doing the changing. A favorite quote of mine expressing this idea of not God changing, but our understanding of God changing, comes from Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christianity, where he writes, human beings cannot do better than their very best at any given moment to communicate about God as they understand God. And scripture faithfully reveals the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. I wonder what happened between Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 49. And for the Bible nerds out there who want to talk about how Isaiah was almost certainly written by more than one author over a span of 150 plus years, one author before the southern kingdom's exile to Babylon who wrote the first 39 chapters sometime in the late 8th century BCE, and another author, or more than one, after the southern kingdom's exile into captivity, who wrote the last 27 chapters sometime in the early 6th century BCE. If you're that Bible nerd, just cool your jets and let's engage the story for a moment. Something happened between Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 49. And my guess is that it has something to do with Israel living with and among foreigners as exiles. It is much easier to say, prepare for battle and be shattered about another nation before living with those people. But once you live there, that becomes a lot harder to say. Which brings me back to my niece Sarah and my next trip up to Canada this upcoming July to officiate her wedding to her fiancé, Daniel. I'm reading through a book by David Zoll called Low Anthropology, An Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Others and Yourself. I haven't finished reading it yet, and so I don't necessarily want to uh, give a wholesale endorsement of it, but based on what I've read so far, I want to say, buy it now using your smartphone and start reading it this afternoon, because it's really that good. Plus, the author is a spitting image of Mark Ruffalo, a.k.a. Bruce Banner, a.k.a. The Incredible Hulk. And so reading this book is pretty much like watching a Marvel movie. <laughs> One third of the way into the book, my oversimplified summary of the book might be this. We all think too highly of ourselves, and it's hurting us. We embrace a high anthropology that has a hard time admitting limitations. We think if we just try a little harder or differently or better, things are going to turn out, which then creates a lot of shame and confusion and lack of self-compassion when things go wrong, which they do frequently and fabulously. The low anthropology that he argues for isn't a woe is me Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh kind of thing. Rather, it is one that acknowledges and accepts limitations, that recognizes self-centeredness and failures. 
which frees us then to have compassion on ourselves and on others. In other words, we're all broken, so stop pretending otherwise. And the fruit of this type of low anthropology creates a heart posture that is far more aligned with what is required to bring about God's kingdom. I think this might be a way of describing the shift that took place between Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 49. Could it be that prior to exile, Israel held a high anthropology that struggled to admit fault or limitations or that God's love could, God could love anyone as much as God loved them. And then exile happened, which forced them to see limitations and faults and failures. And as years passed, living in exile with people different from them, watching them work and love and argue and suffer loss and raise families, they realized the possibility that the reach of God's love might be bigger than just them. And then we get Isaiah's words. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. But again, back to the wedding of my niece, Sarah. The words spoken at most wedding ceremonies tend to live mostly in the realm of high anthropology, waxing eloquently about the keeping of promises and of love and mutual honor and respect. The author, David Zoll slash Mark Ruffalo, mentions stumbling upon an updated marriage ceremony filled with low anthropology language a wedding liturgy comfortable with admitting brokenness and faults. And I followed the YouTube link in his footnotes to watch the full ceremony, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Just listen to the officiant's opening words. We are gathered today for a solemn event, profoundly hopeful, but infinitely difficult. We're here to celebrate the wedding of Emily and Simon, a good marriage is not one from which troubles are magically absent. It is one in which troubles are faced with insight and generosity. And there's a part of me that simply wants to read the entire ceremony right here and now because I think it is that good and that profound, but I will resist and just mention a few of the highlights or low anthropology lights as the case may be. There are several uh, rituals in this revised ceremony, the first of which is called the Ritual of Humility. And the officiant asks both the bride and the groom, do you admit that you are a failed, broken human being, not in every way, but in some ways so serious that you will at points be a grave burden to your spouse? And they each respond in turn, yes, I admit that I am failed and broken. And, and right now, um, anyone present here this morning or listening online who happens to be engaged it might be thinking to themselves, man, this sounds awful. I am not asking Curtis to officiate my wedding. And that's okay, CJ is available. But listen a bit more. The officiant then hands out two small notebooks, one to the bride, one to the groom. These are their notebooks where after careful reflection, they have each listed their failings as best as they recognize them. 
And the wedding liturgy refers to these notebooks as their books of imperfections. And at the officiant's direction, they read to each other what they've written in their book. And in the clip that I watched, here are the bride's words to her groom. I acknowledge that I am not good at communicating my feelings maturely. I won't say what's bothering me, but instead sulk and expect you to read my mind and get furious at you when you can't. I can be quite self-involved. I tend to assume that if you're upset, it's something about me. I get jealous even over small incidents and become petty and hateful instead of showing that I'm afraid of losing you. And after they've read their imperfections to each other, together they recite this vow in unison. Neither of us is fully sane or healthy. We are committed to treating each other as broken people with enormous kindness and imagination when we can manage it. The part of the ceremony that had me nearly in tears was the ritual of charity. And it begins with the officiant speaking these words. Charity is at the heart of love. Charity means finding the least alarming, least panicked view of why the other is acting as they are. It sees the fear behind the aggression. It sees the loneliness at the root of a sulk. It recognizes how shame can make a person defiant and how a hidden worry can unleash excessive harshness. Will you now exchange the ritual gifts of charity? And then they exchanged framed photo photographs of each other from childhood as an acknowledgement that one, we are often far more willing to find the least alarming, least panicked view of the actions of a young child than we are with an adult. But by the exchange of these photos, it represents a commitment to pursue that level of charity with one another. I don't know what happened in Israel's story between Isaiah chapter 8, where God seemed to be only for them or primarily for them, and Isaiah chapter 49, where God is for everyone. But using a sanctified imagination and knowing that chapter 8 was written before exile, when their national identity was still intact and unchallenged, and chapter 49 was written after exile, after much had been lost, I suspect that they went through something like these two rituals, a ritual of humility and a ritual of charity. Unlike the wedding ceremony, where the bride and groom walk through those two rituals willingly, Israel's path was far less willing, but it seems the results are the same. Something expanded within them, and now they can't imagine a God that would only want to save them. Jumping to our gospel reading that Lori Nelson did not read for us earlier, John chapter 1, uh, verses 35 to 39. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God! When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. The question, Rabbi, 
where are you staying, is a dangerous question to ask Jesus. Because I guarantee you, Jesus travels to and stays in places where you would not expect. And I believe that discovery is behind Isaiah's words. They found God where they didn't expect Him. And now it is too light a thing for God to only save us. I find it very fitting that these two texts, Isaiah writing, it is too light a thing, and the disciples asking Jesus, Rabbi, where are you staying? That these two texts fall on Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. This past Friday, I reread Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which is a practice that I do every Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And he wrote the letter, if you're unfamiliar with it, to a group of Alabama clergymen who had critiqued his activities in Birmingham as being unwise and untimely. The letter can be easily found online. If you've never read it before, I would challenge you to do so. It takes about 45 minutes or so to read. The letter is a powerful repudiation of the too small a thing that America was holding on to, maintaining or elevating the status quo of one people group at the expense and detriment of another. Dr. King would have agreed wholeheartedly with Isaiah's words, it is too light a thing. Dr. King also knew quite well the answer to the question, Rabbi, where are you staying? Just read his letter or listen to any of his speeches and you will find his deep conviction that the divine has taken up residence in all of humanity. Human dignity was not present in some and absent in others. In his letter from a Birmingham jail and then repeated again in his famous Christmas sermon in 1967, he said, all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I have narrowed the focus of this morning's message primarily on two phrases. The one phrase from Isaiah, it is too light a thing, and the disciples' question, Rabbi, where are you staying? I believe the application from these texts has the potential to impact all of our relationships, those closest to us and those furthest away, those who look like us physically or ideologically or religiously to those who look least like us. And here's the application or homework that I want to leave you with, and it comes from that low anthropology wedding liturgy from the ritual of humility and the ritual of charity. When conflict and anger and frustration and annoyance or confusion arises with whomever, remember the phrase from the ritual of humility, neither of us is fully sane or healthy. I am committed to treating others as broken people with enormous kindness and imagination when I can manage it. And remember the words spoken by the officiant in the ritual of charity. Charity is at the heart of love. Charity means I am committed to finding the least alarming, least panicked view of why the other is acting as they are. 
And by the way, if we, Ecclesia, have ever hurt or wounded you, I hope that you will adopt this same posture and choose the least alarming and least panicked view of what happened and come talk to us. If we engaged these two low anthropology postures, imagine the impact this would have in our homes, our marriages, our families, our parenting, our friendships, our communities, our politics, and every part of our social fabric. By living this way, we would more fully join with Christ in what the divine is doing in the world, and we would become a fulfillment of Isaiah's words. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Holy One, thank you that Isaiah's story and Israel's story changed. Thank you that their understanding of your hopes and the scope of your love did not stagnate, but rather it grew and expanded. And may we all be on a similar journey. Spirit, help us never settle for too light a thing, for a way of being that is concerned with self or my group at the expense of others. And with the disciples, may we ask, Rabbi, where are you staying? And may we never be afraid of following, following you into the answer. Amen.